Welcome to Nature Revisited. On this edition, we are talking with Joan Edwards, professor of biology at Williams College. I first met Joan last fall after a screening of my film, Negotiating with Nature. We quickly started talking about nature, pollinators, and the winter ahead. Joan's passion for pollinators was so contagious that I knew right away that I wanted to do an episode with her for the podcast. We both agreed that come spring, after her trip to Borneo, where she saw the world's largest flower, we would get together and talk about the importance of flowers and pollinators. Without home, life would be very different. Because of the coronavirus, Joan and I weren't able to meet in person, so we talked on the phone. Spring is here, and pollinators are once again showing us why they are nature's first responders. They are our first responders because they're responding to this huge need for all of us. Who are the pollinators? I'm assuming that there's a lot more than most people know about. Absolutely. There are so many pollinators. I think people would actually be amazed if they knew how many different types and species of pollinators there are. So most people, when they think of pollinators, they think honeybees. And honeybees are fantastic pollinators, but they're not native. They're, they're introduced from Eurasia. And it turns out we have a lot of native pollinators here in the United States that vary from our native bees, which can be very, very tiny, little solitary bees, would barely fit on your fingernail, to large bees like bumblebees, which are, are um, especially the queen bees that should be out shortly. They're big, bumbly bees that buzz and make a lot of noise and make their presence known. But what I've discovered in a lot of my research is another group that is incredibly important here in New England and further north are flies. Flies of all types are really important, and they're by far of the species I cover are the most common pollinators. And these would be flies that you would think would just be houseflies. They just look like a housefly, but they're they're more than a housefly. They, they visit flowers and carry pollen from flower to flower to very showy fly pollinators like the hoverflies that are bee mimics. So they actually look like a bee. They're often colored yellow and black, but they are flies. They only have two wings. They have much larger eyes. And they're spectacularly beautiful pollinators in and of themselves, but they're also some of the workhorses of the pollinator world. But there are other groups, too, like beetles. Beetles are, are critical pollinators. Uh, butterflies, of course, they're birds. If we get out of the insect world, you go to bird pollination, and they're also important. So there are huge numbers of species, and there's a great diversity in pollinators all of which really depend on flowers for food and resources, from nectar to for sugar, and sometimes nectar actually has proteins in it. So nectar is a f source of, of food, and then also 
pollen, which is very rich in protein. And even some pollinators rely on flowers for scents. They pick up scents that they use in their own mating practices. So there are all sorts of different ways that flowers can reward pollinators for carrying their genes from one flower to the next. So that would be my, my next question. What do pollinators do? Okay, so here I think it's important to know what pollination is. Pollination is the transfer of pollen from the anthers, which are the pollen-producing organs on a flower, to the stigma, which is the receptive area of the flower, the pollen-receiving area. And the transfer or the movement of pollen from stamens or anthers to stigmas is what pollination is. So pollinators are the couriers of genes. They carry the pollen, which if you recall basic botany, the pollen carries the sperm cells to the stigma, which is the receptive area on the flower that receives the pollen. The pollen tubes germinate and then they grow down to the ovules, which have the eggs, and they fertilize the eggs. The eggs will then develop, in, fertilized eggs will develop into seeds and with baby plants, and then you get a whole new plant. So why are they important to us? Oh, gosh, they're important in so many different ways. First, if you want to just make the practical argument, there are about 1,500 different crop plants that depend on pollinators to set fruit. So we can't get blueberries or raspberries without pollinators. We can't get zucchinis without pollinators. So you absolutely have to have pollinators for our food crops. And just from a practical standpoint, pollinators are worth billions of dollars for their pollination services that they provide for our various different food crops. So that's one reason. we. We can't eat without pollinators. We need to have pollinators for food. A second reason, and one that is really critical and near and dear to me, is that pollinators and flowers feed the soul. Pollinators are diverse. Flowers are miraculously beautiful and stunningly beautiful. Both of those things contribute to the world's biodiversity in a huge way. And if we don't have pollinators, we don't have flowers, and we lose a huge portion of the natural world. They're really, really important. Uh, just aesthetically and spiritually, to feed our soul, to provide biodiversity, yeah. So how do pollinators fit in in the urban setting, like in cities? I mean, are, are there pollinators there that are doing a, an important... There are absolutely pollinators in cities. I think cities are an important place for preserving pollinators. You know, some cities like New York City have actually made it um, okay to have honeybees in the city, which is important. But then if you have honeybees in the city, then you also have to provide food for them. So I think there are all sorts of things that um, urban gardeners can do and city planners can do to improve the survivorship of pollinators. They can plant flowering trees, redbud, and flowering crab, and flowering plums that will allow a resource for insects. And really not just uh, honeybees, but even native species. Parks 
and recreation areas and green spaces are really, really important, I think, in providing uh, food for pollinators. So I think you can have coexistence of flowers and pollinators in an urban setting and also everyone then gets to enjoy the bloom of the flowers as well as the beautiful pollinators. So what are some of the ways that we are harming them? Oh, I think the fate of pollinators right now is really sad and it's really not only the fate of pollinators but all the species that depend on them. So pollinators have been in decline for a very long time, and this is a global decline. This isn't just in the United States or just in the tropics, but it's all over the world. We've seen a precipitous drop in pollinators to the point where we have actually put some of them on uh, our endangered species list. So, for example, the rusty patch bumblebee was just listed recently. So what's caused that? Well, I think there are a number of different factors. Certainly habitat loss. As we have developed more and more land and natural areas have become rarer, natural habitats for pollinators have been shrinking. Second, pesticide use is a huge problem, particularly neurological toxins that we've used that People are really trying hard to get banned for use because they're really not only bad for pollinators, but they're not really very good for humans either. And third, interestingly, particularly in the period of coronaviruses, disease. Disease also wipes out pollinators. And in the news recently, you've heard a lot about various different uh, diseases that have attacked honeybees. I think it's probably likely some of these diseases also have affected our native pollinators, though I don't know that for certain. Regular diseases can also come through and wipe out our pollinators. So habitat loss, use of pesticides, diseases are all playing a role in reducing the number of pollinators we have on this earth. So how can we help them? Well, I think there are a number of different ways that we can help them. Number one, keep the flowers coming. So create habitat for pollinators. If every individual had yards and managed their yards and fields in a way that created better habitat for pollinators, we could have a significant impact. I have a couple of ideas that come out of my own research that I think are important. In my research, I look at pollinators uh, visiting flowers, and I do this on a very fine scale. So I use cameras that take a picture every three seconds. Because when I started to study flowers and their pollinators, I first started by just standing next to a flower and then watching to see what came to the flower. I found this really frustrating because if I was standing there and a mosquito came by, I would swat it and of course my sudden movement would scare any insect away. It was really, really hard to identify them on the fly as it were. So I really dreamt that I could be a flower and I could just sit there and I could just record everything that landed on my face. Eventually what I did is I found these cameras that you can put in the field and they would take a picture, just snap a picture of the flower every three seconds. 
and we calculated that this would capture about 95% of the visits to a flower over its entire bloom. So by looking at flowers carefully and recording every single insect that visited over its entire bloom, I started to get a really different view of flowers and their pollinators and how they interact. The first thing that I noticed is that there are a lot of visits to flowers. Everybody wants to visit a flower. Not only pollinators, but insects that are moochers in the system, something like an ant will come and visit the flower. So there are a lot of visitors that come in, sometimes you know, tens or hundreds over the lifetime of a flower blooming. But then I started to get more interesting data when I put out many, many cameras so I could do simultaneous observations of flowers. What I did is I looked at a flower patch at one site, and then 300 meters away I would look at another patch, and I recorded all the insects that came into those two patches. And what I discovered is that the flowers at patch one were being visited by a different set of insects than the flowers at patch two. Both sites had unique visitors. The visitors to flowers differ on a very fine spatial scale. So it means if you have a garden and your neighbor has a garden with flowers two blocks away, you could be getting very different insects and therefore you could be helping to preserve a greater diversity of insects. Your garden is contributing because the species are different. This tremendous diversity I've called a neighborhood model of visitation. If you're a flower, you're going to draw on insects in your neighborhood to carry your pollen from one flower to the next. And if you're an insect, you're going to visit the flowers in your neighborhood. Those are going to be the ones that you feel most comfortable visiting. If you know that neighborhood, you know which flowers are going to bloom when, you know where the hiding spots are if a predator comes through. And so you're going to visit locally rather than go long, long distances. If everybody has a garden, we're all going to preserve a slightly different set of pollinators in our gardens and provide food resources for a slightly different set of pollinators. And that is going to boost preserving a greater diversity of insect visitors. How did you come to be so passionate about pollinators? Well, it's really interesting. Um, when I was growing up, I always loved flowers. I, you know, from when I was in grade school, I wanted to know what the flowers were in my yard. I love flowers. I wanted to know who they were, what their names were, how they grew, when they grew. And so I've always loved plants and always been attracted to them. But, you know, when I was growing up, there weren't very many women scientists. And I never thought I could do science, ever. I mean, so I went off to college. I eventually started to become an anthropology major. And then I noticed when I was reading ethnographies of the Yanomamo or, or whatever um, exotic group, what I remembered from all the ethnographies was how they used plants. So then I thought, oh, maybe I could be an ethnobotanist. So then I decided to switch my major to botany, and about three weeks into the program, I realized 
I loved doing field work and I loved being outside and I loved looking at the natural world. And so then I thought, wow, if I can be a field biologist, I think I could really be happy for the rest of my life. So that switched me to being a field botanist rather than an ethnobotanist. And then eventually I got back to flowers and what got me back into pollination was a very exciting flower called bunchberry dogwood, which is an exploding flower. It has little tiny flowers that explode open in less than three milliseconds. So if you take a second and you divide it into a thousand units, and then you take half of them, the flower opens in less than half a millisecond, which is really astounding. And then I started to ask, well, why does it explode? And that's when I got into pollination biology, and that's when I started to record all the visitors that came into that flower over its entire bloom. And to make a long story short, it turns out that if you look at the visitors that come in, everybody wants to come into this flower, including ants that don't pollinate it at all, but also including things like a large surfed flies. These are the hoverflies that I talked about earlier. When they land on an unopened flower, it explodes underneath them and it throws the pollen on the underside of the insect, and then they fly on to the next flower. And they visited maybe 15 flowers, jumping from one flower to the next and depositing pollen as it goes. So it turns out that it's a weight-based pollination mechanism. If you have a heavy insect that lands on the flower, the flower explodes open on it and places its pollen on it. But if you're a light insect like an ant, the flower doesn't open. Then that got me into further pollination questions. It became very, very exciting. It completely transformed how I look at flowers and their pollinators. How do they fit into the the big picture? I mean, the really big picture of nature. Well, you know, if you want to go back to Darwin, Darwin really wondered about flowering plants because if you look at all the different kinds of plants, like you look at conifers, these would be our pines, or you look at ferns, these are all earlier groups of plants that evolved before the flowering plants. Flowering plants are a very recent group of plants. But the distinctive thing about flowering plants is they exploded in diversity. And there are many, many more species of flowering plants, between 300 and 400,000 species of flowering plants, whereas there may be 10,000 species of ferns. So a whole order of magnitude difference. Darwin noticed this pattern, and he really wondered how could this very recent group of plants have so many different species. And that became what Darwin called an abominable mystery. There are so many species, we don't know where they came from and how they diversified so rapidly. And I think the answer to this is becoming clear. And that is the flowering plants are some of the very few plants that have biotic pollination. They don't use wind. 
they use insects, and it's the insects and birds and butterflies and bats, all of which are pollinators, the biotic pollination vectors that we think now have driven the rapid speciation in flowering plants. So we would not have flowers in nature. We would not have the tremendous diversity we had without the evolution of pollination itself. So the world as we know it would be completely devoid of all of those amazing flowers and the amazing diversity that we see today without pollination itself. One question I've pondered a lot in my research is, why do we as humans love flowers so much? I actually think the answer is relatively easy. Flowers, of course, are designed to attract pollinators. They're designed to appeal to an insect, a fly, a bee, a bird, a butterfly. The neurological makeup of a fly or a bee, and, and people might not like me saying this, it is coming from the same stuff that our neurological makeup is coming from. So what appeals to a bee is also going to appeal to us in some broad way. And I think what pollinators tell you in some sense is the connectedness of all living things. You know, the, the animal lineage uh, has a neurological system that all evolved from one base. Many of the likes, the, the things that we find pleasing, symmetry, color, smell, are similar between us and a fly or a bee or a bird. To me, that's humbling and also gives you a deep love for the diversity of life. And I think pollinators teach you that in a, in a really spectacular way. Are there any other things that you're doing that you might want to share with my listeners? There's another study that I've been working on, and that is how to manage fields in New England to maximize pollinator resources. And we've been running an experiment now since 2012. We've done different mowing patterns on the fields. We've mowed early, which would be a June mow, which is quite common actually in New England. And then we've done a late mow, which is in October after the first frost. And we've recorded every single flowering stem that comes up because in, in New England, the flowers that are important in these fields are members of the aster family, so goldenrods and asters. They have tons of flowers. They produce copious amounts of pollen, which are late summer and fall resource for our native pollinator species. So they're incredibly important. And it turns out if you do a June mow, an early mow, you hardly get any flowering stems. If you can wait to mow your fields until after the first frost, you will get a field that is bountiful with thousands of stems of goldenrods and asters. You will feed a lot of pollinators. So if you want to do an annual mow and you want to keep it as an open field, do it late. If you can hold off till October, you not only get the beauty of the goldenrod field, which I, I love goldenrods. They, have, they start with that beautiful lemon yellow in the first bloom, and then they fade to sort of that mustard yellow. And then that's punctuated with 
New England aster with its deep purple and tall aster with its white flowers, and you get to enjoy all of that, let them go to seed and then mow them, and then you're fresh to experience it the next year. And you've provided this incredible resource for pollinators that allow them to tank up on food just before the winter. And I just want to say one more thing. I don't know if you can fit this in. So goldenrods have a very bad reputation because people think it causes hay fever. But think of this. You're a goldenrod flower, and you're showy. You're bright yellow. You want your pollen to go on to an insect. You are not going to put your pollen into the wind. Wind is not a good place for you to put your pollen if you're a goldenrod. So if you have a field of goldenrods and you have pollinators, that pollen is going onto the pollinators and going into their bodies and going to their hives to feed their young, and it's not going into the air. So goldenrods actually do not cause hay fever. What's happening is that goldenrod blooms at the same time as ragweed, and it's actually the ragweed that's causing it. So don't blame the goldenrod. Yeah, I used to hate goldenrod. Really? Nature can teach us things if we're willing to listen. Absolutely. I've learned to love the goldenrods. When they first appear, you know, the early goldenrod, it's that lemon yellow. It's just, and they're dancing on their stems in the field. They're just beautiful. Pollinators are our first responders because they're responding to this huge need for all of us, for food and for beauty and aesthetics, nature. So they're responding to, I think, basic human need that we have beyond food, but also to our own sustenance and provide, I think, a, an amazing resource for people during this time. I know for me, for many of my friends, going out into nature and seeing the flowers of the spring and seeing the first pollinators coming out is really exciting and uplifting. I hope you enjoyed this edition of Nature Revisited and our conversation with Joan Edwards. If you did enjoy this, please share with family, friends, and colleagues. You can also subscribe to Nature Revisited on your podcast server. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. And if you would like to support Nature Revisited, or share your thoughts and ideas, please visit our website, nordenproductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N, productions.com. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan. I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, do remember, we are nature.